Welcome everyone to Bobby Talks, dot, dot, dot. Those dots are there to tell you that there's always more to the story. And today's story is, what is the value of human life? Is that a moral question? Is that an economical question? Or I'm sitting here with a professor of philosophy. Maybe that is a philosophical question. Uh, Nathan Dufour, he's a man that I follow on TikTok. He is on his way to the up and up, sitting well over 100,000 uh, uh, followers. Man that has uh, a very interesting take on the world. Um, very creative, artistic, um, and intelligent. And I'm just excited as I'll get out to have you on the show today, man. Nathan DeFour, how you doing, buddy? I'm doing well. Thanks so much for having me. Thank you for the, the glowing introduction. Appreciate it. I'm glad, to, I'm glad to be here. Let's see if we can figure out the value of human life. <laughs> the value of which, human life. Nathan, does anybody, does anybody outside your uh, friends or family actually give a shit that you're alive? Uh, that is a good question. Well, I mean, you would be one piece of evidence, you know, because you, <laughs> you cared enough to reach out to uh, talk to me about stuff and we just met. So um, I don't know. I, I'd ask the same question of you. Do you feel that this is the case? The, the people outside of your immediate sphere of care care about you? You know, I think it depends on the day. <laughs> <laughs> Unfortunately. Um, no, I think, uh, yeah, I, 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 obviously the answer is yes. I just, uh, sometimes you throw the question out there like that. You just never know what you're going to get back. Um, this idea of what the value of human life is, is at, at times when you look around, especially I just got another breaking news on the Associated Press. There was a shooting out in Maryland um, a couple hours ago, and it's just like uh, this is becoming what I thought was a weekly occurrence. Now it feels like it's like every fifth day or every fourth day. Um, and maybe it's just because my my Associated Press tells me every time there is one and I maybe I shouldn't do that. That might be another thing altogether. But um this conversation started when Russia first uh, invaded Ukraine between me and another buddy. And it was how many deaths have to happen before, you know, America would step in or would it just take one American life or one, um, you know, allies life to happen before America would get involved um, in, or anybody to get involved? Because it seems like if it was happening here, obviously we would, um, we would obviously protect our homeland, but we would fight back because of the cost of the American life. But when you are somebody that looks at human beings on a global scale, um, the question was, you know, what is the value of human life? Is it simply just economical when it comes to governments? And do we as individuals look at it differently? What are, what are your general thoughts on that? Uh, well, that is a profound and difficult question. I like that this is what we're talking about because I didn't know that we were going to have such a specific sphere of, of uh, topics to be covering, but I'm glad that we're talking about it. Um, I think it's a question that we can't really answer. I mean, if the question is how to value a human life, when we're valuing a human life, do we mean the physical organism of that human being? Do we mean the attributes of that human being that are in some way transcendent of the physical organism. That's to say it brings up metaphysical questions about what we think the nature of the soul is or whether there is such a thing as a soul or whether the human body is a process that has this attribute of consciousness, but that consciousness completely ceases once that body ceases functioning. And also how do we value an individual versus a collective? There's so many modes of abstraction that are required to make the question make sense 
that I think there's always going to be a plurality of answers. I mean, you asked, is it an economic question? It can be if we're thinking qua economics or through the lens of economics. If we're thinking through the lens of, um, you know, through a theological lens, then it becomes a different answer. And I don't think that I can give you a clear quantification of that value either. Um, I, I guess that's my first thought on it. Well, in a, in a scope of... Uh... Let's look at the economic aspect, um, especially in the in you know wartime, um, especially you know for Ukrainian people. Um, from an out- outsider's perspective, such as us, an American looking at the you know the invasion of Ukraine, um, is it is it fair when you talk about in the matter of life and death? Okay, do we value life in that aspect? Um, and if we do. Should there even be an economical conversation to it? Should it just be in the matter of good versus evil? Shouldn't good try to triumph evil on all aspects on a global stage in everybody? Or is that just because we know that it does ultimately end to suffering now in this country? Um, I mean, I get it. It's a complex question. But when, when evil is showing its ugly head, shouldn't good try to prevail or is it okay for us to separate ourselves and say, you know what, we're not the good to that evil. Right. Yeah. Well, I mean, you're asking me, you introduced me as, as a philosopher, which I, I think I'm becoming gradually deserving of that name, but I don't know if I fully deserve it yet. My background is in uh, studies of the classics, so Greco Roman antiquity. And so within that ancient philosophy is kind of my main area of interest Um, And it's what I did most of my academic work on. But I would say that the questions that we're asking are ones that are perennial in philosophy that ultimately come down to the intersection point between what we think the nature of reality is and then what we can derive from that to create an ethical system. So they're two separate considerations because first we go, okay, what's going on here? You know, how are things structured? These are, this is what I meant by saying, like, do we believe in the existence of a soul? Do we believe um, in the existence of a God who is able to enforce or suggest or through revealed knowledge in scriptural texts or something like give us some sort of directive on, on which we would erect an ethical system? Or do we have none of that such that our ethical systems are really much more pragmatic? They're, let's, for instance, utilitarianism, which is about diminishing pain for the maximum number of people, maximizing pleasure, diminishing pain for the, ma- for the maximum number of people, various ways of configuring it. But then that admits of a sort of quantitative analysis. And so until we you know, do step A, we can't necessarily do step B. However, it's kind of become kind of predominant, especially in a lot of modern thought implicitly, to suppose that there isn't any contact point between those two things, that either we can't know the nature of reality or the nature of reality is that it's just matter, it's just stuff. And so that opens the gate for a great deal of relativism in terms of how we value human life. I think that's something that we have going on in our culture, that there is a tremendous relativity to our ethical codes. I think we have that going on, but at the same time, we still have a deeply ingrained, at least in Western culture, Christian ethics that's just in us, whether or not we're Christian at all, even if we're, you know, uh, vehemently atheist, I think people's value systems are still suffused with the presuppositions of a thou shalt not kill, which has its origins, not in any kind of coherent philosophical thought, but rather in, uh, I shouldn't say incoherent, but but its roots in revealed religion or or in scripture and Judeo-Christian thought and the thought of the Abrahamic religions that takes that as a given. That doesn't defend itself as a given. It just says that's how it is. And so I think that even when people 
style themselves as being liberated from those value systems they haven't really. Because for instance, if you're taking it at face value, what the modern sciences would tell us, which is that we're made of material processes, those material processes function in a way that is, at least on the scale of uh, our bodies, relatively mechanical. We can make predictions about what's going to happen to a body. Some would say that it's mechanical all the way down and that the universe is really just one sort of mechanism. But either way, this the the group of presuppositions that I would class under the heading of, call it uh, scientific materialism. Matter is just matter. It's just stuff. And even when we think and feel, those are reducible to chemical processes happening in the brain. It's just some stuff doing stuff, and that's all that it is. <laughs> There's no way to derive an ethical system from it. The, uh, the philosopher David Hume, early modern philosopher David Hume, says you can't get an ought from an is. And okay. if, if what we just have is existence, there's no way to derive an ought from it. We can derive oughts if we start to say, you know, if we're in such and such situation and we're trying to obtain such and such an end, then we should do this. If we're trying to uh, not crash, then we should uh, not drunk drive. But it's only with that if that that makes sense. And so. But, so you were you're talking, though, about a bunch of stuff doing stuff, if you look at it that way. Um, so in. in in that aspect, do, do they not believe in consciousness or like, you know, being aware of um, choices? I mean, because I feel like it, it, that, that I understand the whole random aspect of we're here randomly, you know, doing a bunch of random things. But like, surely there is some type of on purpose, you know, mentality to that since you are conscious of your, your decisions, right? Well, again, I'm not trying to promulgate my own opinions about these things. In fact, I, for what I was describing as the position of uh, the predominating scientific materialism, I wouldn't say that that's my position. I'm just saying it's a commonplace right. assumption okay. that people make. Um, over, Like, at least some people do. And, you know, whether or not, I guess, I mean, would you agree with that, that there's a lot of folks who who would accept oh. um, that that uh, that species of thought? There's oh, yeah, other folks. Sure. I think who, that's where the predominantly athe atheist people, you know, come from. They tend to believe that we are just randomly here. Um, doing random things, and then we will just cease to exist after after the fact. Um, what what is your position then? Since you know, I have you on the show. Like, what what is your position on specifically? You know, I mean, I I know it's such a vague question, but like, what we've been talking about so far. I don't have a specific position that I can defend with ironclad certainty, and I don't know if I ever <laughs> will. But I do. Lean you lean one in way. I, I, I'm leaning more and more, or I, I should say that I have a passion for the idea of uh, the idea that there's more going on than that, and that we don't need to invoke traditional structures of religion or revealed truth as such in order to get there. Um, and I would say that the 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 kind of thinking that I'm most attracted to, especially these days, um, is of a variety called panpsychism. You ever heard panpsychism before? I haven't. No. I was just talking with a friend about isms and how to introduce an ism is both helpful and not because on the one hand it gives us clarity but it also conceals because it just brings a bunch of different organic thinking under one little label and then it starts <laughs> to mean less as soon as you hike the ism out. But I'm going to hike it out anyway at the risk of doing that. So panpsychism, it's from the pan means all and the psych part is the same thing we have in psychology and stuff. It's from the Greek word psyche which means mind or soul. For the Greeks, by the way, the ancient Greeks, there was no difference between mind and soul. We're talking about originally a pre-Christian context where these ideas I'm about to describe first emerged. 
it's not necessarily a soul like something that just exists in your body like a shell, but rather it's it's your mind. It's the same thing as whatever is the faculty of thinking, expressing agency, having thoughts and making choices and expressing those things um, in an embodied form. So panpsychism is the notion that consciousness inhabits all of matter. All of matter is uh, in some way contains or expresses consciousness, even things that are non-living. So even inanimate objects have some psychic element in them. And when I say psychic, I don't mean like the psychic who makes predictions. I mean psychical, like having a, a soul stuff or a spirit stuff. And so in that sense, uh, we're talking about a, a kind of thought that shows up sometimes in the Western tradition, but is way more abundantly represented in uh, indigenous thought in the Americas, for instance, also indigenous thought other places on the, in the, on the, on the planet. Um, Eastern philosophy has a lot more uh, representation of this kind of idea that whatever we think of as mind permeates all of being. There is a mindedness in everything. And this is a relatively rare view in modern philosophy. However, it's starting to become prominent again as we're wrestling with the mind-body problem because a big debate that goes on in philosophy now is if we can map all of the different uh, functions that the brain has in its chemical processes and be, be able to pinpoint what neuron does what, and if we map the entire brain, we have a complete neurological map of how uh, we operate. Does that mean that we've actually explained consciousness? And there's some philosophers who say, yes, all spirit, all soul, all the things that we used to call that are reducible, in fact, just to this matter that's doing these mechanical processes. And there are other philosophers who say the opposite, that, uh, that we will still be no closer to describing it. There's an analogy, for instance, of uh, um, the radio. It's from a philosopher named Henri Bergson. So Bergson says, a lot of people think that the brain is the thing that produces consciousness, but the brain may be more like a radio. If you didn't know how radios worked and you turned it on, you would think that the radio is producing the sound the way that a uh, the way that like a Walkman would. Um, you know what I mean? Like the, the CD is in there and you press the thing and it's making the sound. <laughs> that's back. not actually how a radio works. The radio is actually this thing that's calibrated. It's a physical object that's calibrated to receive a signal that comes from elsewhere. And that signal actually permeates the entire space. It's everywhere. So anywhere you turn the radio on, if you're close enough to that signal, it would receive it. Now, if you start messing with the radio, you mess around with the gears and stuff in there and the wires and you start like just like, you know, uh, tampering with it. It's going to change the signal, obviously, from which you could still feel that the radio was the one producing the signal, but you would still be incorrect because what you found is a correlation rather than a causation. Right. It's true that you're that you can mess with the brain and affect its ability to receive uh, whatever this thing called spirit or mind is, but we have no way of demonstrating that it's the origin point of it. And there's a lot of problems in philosophy that are solved if we suppose that the mind has existed all along. Probably the main one being if mind does just come from the brain, why did this one exception to the rest of the rules of how matter works, that's to say subjectivity and being able to think about stuff and having an eye, why did it just emerge at one point with a certain type of organism in the history of the evolution of matter? That would be the only such leap in all of reality for there to be a qualitative change where we go from things being sheerly objective and unfeeling to suddenly having some things with the class of feeling. And philosophy is a lot about the principle of parsimony or making things as simple as possible. And so the simpler explanation is that everything has both physical and mental attributes.
Now, the reason this is coming up is because uh, in panpsychistic thought, you begin to look at ethical questions in a new way, which is, okay, so if everything material is in some way imbued with feeling, then I am not just an I, I am rather the result of a whole bunch of eyes who happen to be collaborating, some consciously, some unconsciously, into one giant organism. I am a society of cells, and those cells are societies of molecules, and those molecules are society, using that word in a literal sense, the same way that we're a society. Like, I'm a thing made up of many other things, and only insofar as I'm made up of things am I a thing at all. And all of those things feel, and all of those things want to self-actualize. But then I start to face what the ethical considerations are. Because obviously there are situations where it makes really good sense to kill certain cells. I mean, my body is, as you know, as, as, as they tell us in like biology documentaries and stuff like that, is mostly not even me. I'm mostly made up of stuff that isn't even my DNA. So I got a bunch of onboard stuff that is not me genetically, but it's still part of me if it makes sense to refer to me at all. Because without my gut fauna or flora rather and my, my uh, microbiome that keeps me healthy, I wouldn't be alive right now. I need that stuff. But there's certain other things that I don't need. And so if I'm a doctor, a medical doctor, and somebody's got an infection, then I have the job of killing certain things that are trying to self-actualize themselves and trying to exist within this larger society. I'm waging then a just war on something because I prefer some other organic arrangement um, for whatever reason. Now, then what would be the reason? So based on what do you kill certain things and preserve other things? One way of thinking about it in some species of panpsychist ethics is complexity, things of greater complexity or greater sophistication. Complexity doesn't need to mean uh, large in size or a number of parts, but complexity in the, in the sense of being able to do things that, for instance, human beings do, which is to produce reflective uh, expressions of themselves or to do things like making art or to do things like the higher quote unquote animals can do. So then you start to introduce ideas of, of hierarchy because we can't give each cell the same right to actualize as the body of which it's a part, because that's a cancer. Which is why, from an ecological perspective, people sometimes think, okay, well, what cancers do we have going on on the face of the planet Earth? Conceivably, you could put humans kind of high on the top of that list as right. a component part that is replicating in such a way that it diminishes the harmonious functioning of the rest of the parts. Now, I'm not ready to completely say that human beings are a cancer, and I'm certainly not offering that to justify wars happening anywhere, but I am saying that something about that more uh, mind and body centric way of thinking is how I would begin to approach such a question. I didn't think we were going to be talking about it. I thought we were going to be talking about TikTok. <laughs> <laughs> we'll, we'll, we'll get there, man. We'll, in good time, we'll we will definitely get there. Although I'll tell you what, I can tell you after the first 20 minutes of this, people are probably ready to unwind and maybe just go watch some TikTok. They'll probably hit pause for a second. Um, dude, lot, lot thrown at me there. I want to touch on some of those things though. So you said an interesting thing. So in that cause, if we're all just a bunch of, you know, societies and everybody's fighting for self-actualization, I guess you would be then. No, the not question. fighting for it, not fighting for it, collaborating in order to achieve. That's the thing is it's not sheerly combative. It can become competitive, Think, think of evolution, right? We've been kind of we've been trained to think of evolution uh, as um, as a mostly competitive thing, which is one model of describing evolution. And there is a competitive aspect, but that's really what we emphasize: the survival of the fittest kind of uh, tagline. 
which is true. But does fitness consist in the ability to beat out other things? Not necessarily, because another way to become fit is to collaborate well with your environment, which right. actually in a lot of Darwin's writing is kind of the point of emphasis. And Darwin wasn't the only person working on uh, evolution. He just happened to substantiate it in a really compelling way. And he had the chops as a biological scientist as well to present it in a demonstrable way. But there was a lot of philosophers who were working on the same idea around the same time that emphasized the, 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 the picture of it in a little bit more nuanced of a fashion. I feel like the reason that we tend to emphasize the survival of the fittest cutthroat sort of element is, is just a reflection of what our value system in society is, which is, is an economic question, you know, to bring it back to that. Yeah, and I think at the time that that was because uh, I, I think towards the end of my education, it, it started changing a little bit to the one that's most willing to adapt, which makes a more of a yeah, more yeah. intelligent um, way of looking at it versus the hyper masculine, hyper Americana, you know, maybe sixties way of education of like teaching Darwin, you know, Darwinism. Um, yeah, I, I think that, I think we kind of went away from that a little bit. Um, at least we should have, um, yeah. Okay. So in that case, it's more, we're all collaborating. So it, it wouldn't be, so if we were to do this from that perspective, today's show would have been like, what is the value of society life, um, versus human life? So I get what you're going for there. Um, I, I think it, at the end of the day, it really, for me, it's like going back to your radio analogy and the mind working as a radio. So in that case, it's kind of interesting because, you know, with human beings before then it was probably, you know, there wasn't as much consciousness and then all of a sudden we have this. And now that's why we kind of get this more self grandeur kind of, uh, you know, um, more important than we actually are type of mentality at times um, because we come with such a consciousness um, in our you know sense of awareness um, which it's funny how since we have this gift we tend to be more vain with it than we do the other route which is an interesting study in its own but um, it just it, it to me it's like since we have it it could be both in my eyes Nathan it's like it can we, we could be a matter of stuff just doing stuff, but then evolution led us to this place and now we have this consciousness. So like now we have it and we want to over, you know, try to romanticize why we have it, try to figure out the purpose of life and like, what, you know, do we have value and things of that nature? But I think now that we have it, I think we have to justify life and say yes, that there is value and that it's more than just an economical one. Um, you know, you're creating art. And that art isn't just for yourself. That art is to be thrown out into the world um, and to share a network of with people. And I think, look at what's happened through TikTok. Look, I think we have a, you know, a lot of things in common, you and I. And that's why I was drawn and gravitate towards you because, because of that. Um, I think that at the end of the day, it's, uh, you know, whether we know it or not, it's this, this, um, and maybe I'm branching to another show, but uh it's this idea of wanting network with people. Um, you know, I'm not hundred percent sure that we know what our purpose is, but it's everybody's journey to figure out what their purpose is and what their value of life is. So I think you're right. Mm -hmm. It's more of an individualistic answer rather than a, you know, a totality of it. Um, but when people are making decisions, when it comes to life and death, you know, it feels like at times we don't value life. Um, mm -hmm. you know, if you look at it from an individual, if I was to ask you, Nathan, you know, do you want, you know, me to die? You would say, no, you would have a, your response, you know, as an empathetic person would be, you know, I, I wouldn't want to die. So I wouldn't want to see you die. Um, but it feels like once you're removed from something, 
that's kind of where it ends. Um, mm-hmm. You don't, you know, I, I was talking with the, my buddy about this. It's like, if your neighbor is um, going to war with someone, you're going to have their back. They're right next to you. You know what I mean? If you're close, um, you move them down the street and there's war taking place. You're going to protect yours or you're going to protect yourself. But it's like the further away that gets, the mm-hmm. less you care about it. And I'm not sure that that should matter, um, but it does. It does seem to take up. A- yeah, you're, you're, you're quite right. It is. It's a, it's a. I think it might be, I mean, maybe it's too pessimistic to say it's an intractable problem, but I don't know. I don't know the answer to, um, to how to discern in those situations. And I think a degree of arbitrariness is always going to enter into it. You know, I mean, you framed it earlier in terms of at what point is it just to involve yourself in a war that doesn't directly involve you? Um, I don't know if we've ever, as a country, I'm not a historian of American history, but I don't know if we've ever, as a country, involved ourselves in a war actually out of desire to obtain justice for someone else in a disinterested sense. It's always ultimately in reference to interest. Right. There are arguments for moral, supposedly moral activity, even among individuals that that suggest that self-interest is ultimately um, even the motivation of those things, um, which is maybe worth considering along the same lines. I think the point of emphasis for me and in, in my own small sphere of power and why I'm so fascinated by education and so convinced of the importance of it is that of even greater facility and importance in stopping, for instance, something like uh, mass shootings here at home of even greater importance than what we do about controlling firearms, which I do think is important, but it's not an area that I have expertise in from a policy perspective. But even more important than that is the curation of relationship between human beings from their earliest infancy between one another and with the world itself. And this is where these philosophical questions about literally what do we think the nature of reality is, they, they, aren't, just, they aren't just interesting to think about. They affect how we approach the delicate adventure of educating people from their earliest upbringing. And if we have a highly relationality-centric doctrine that we're bringing kids up in, and a non-coercive environment that we're bringing them up in, where it's about maximizing freedom of individual expression, maximizing possibilities of collaboration, maximizing uh, organic desire for knowledge and collaboration, rather than uh, sort of the cookie-cutter structures that we put people to, we're giving people, as they become adults, a lot less to resist. Every time there's a school shooting, it seems to me like what's being lashed out at is school itself as an institution to a degree, the original prison into which we put people, you know? And I say that as an educator who I didn't abjectly hate school. I had some of my most formative experiences at school and some really excellent teachers whom I was fortunate to have. But I sometimes feel that I had those fortunate relationships uh, in spite of the institution, you know, and I could have had them elsewhere. And so those are the kinds of things that preoccupy me the most, which is why I want to do what I want to do. I mean, I really want to bring education out of institutions and not just into people's phones, but that's where I am for now. <laughs> well, right now, 100,000 people following you, that's a pretty good start. Uh, 
if just for those, uh, I, I haven't said this yet, but it's at Nathanology on TikTok. Um, yeah, at Nathanology great... underscore. There's a little underscore there. Just uh... Oh, at the end or in the beginning? Yeah, yeah. At the end, at the end. At Nathan, uh, I should have known that, my fault. At Nathanology underscore um, on TikTok. He is, his idea is taking education and trying to put them in the videos. And you, <laughs> first of all, your rap ability um, how, how old were you when that became a thing? Like, how did you know? You're like, you know, I'm pretty, pretty good at this. I don't know. I mean, I've always been. And do you have songs. a, uh, do you have, um, you know, like a, a, a fast or a fascination with, you know, rap hip hop? Like, is, you know, Oh yeah. Know? Yeah. No, I mean that I was, I was trying to just rap before I was trying to educate with raps. I mean that the, <laughs> the, I was educating, I was teaching and I was rapping and I gradually fused them. That's, that's the, uh, that's, that's how it came together it wasn't uh i don't consider myself as using rap to teach rather i think that i just rap and teach they're one thing for me which is really you know that's the roots of hip-hop are like that too it wasn't the form did not exist very long before it was already really even in its very infancy it was infused with traditions that were uh educational i mean like the the west african griot tradition is part of its dna the stuff going on with last poets in the 60s and 70s is part of its dna which is instructional and poetic at the same time the the you know some of the greatest golden era practitioners of hip-hop krs1 public enemy stuff like that it is educational transmission-based music it's a vessel of transmission um through a musical modality which is the same thing that was happening in any culture that you can pick you know what i mean look at this is true in the ancient western world like in in the 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 cradle of western civilization that, that those kinds of roles were played as well. The first Greek philosophers were poets. They literally wrote poems, and those poems that we have that in written form are really just like the album version of something that was performed right. and changed a little bit every single time. The bardic tradition in Celtic culture, you know, all of this, the gesture of teaching and the gesture of making poetry, the same thing in rap, I think it really is the most, it really is the rebirth of that. That's what it is. You know, it's like, it's like this star that came back to, to the planet. And so... Well, when, when hip hop like, first yeah. when hip hop first started taking off, um, you know what, early mid eighties, late eighties, um, that was. I mean, it is education. They're they're trying to teach you on their way Absolutely. of life, their culture. I mean, it, it, and still to this day, it's. I mean, everything kind of ventures off sideways at times, but like, uh, yeah, I mean, it's still to this day. I mean, it's educational. Um, they're informing you about, you know, whether it be a culture uh, injustice. Um, um, or just, the, I'm informing you about my way of life. If you're an Island boy down there in, uh, Miami, <laughs> Florida, <laughs> which, uh, how does that, um, before we start venturing into some other areas, I just, as a, as somebody who's Island actually su successful on TikTok, you being the person I'm referring to, um, does it bother you that you're working so hard and maybe you're not working so hard, but you, you know, you, you are coming at it from more of an intelligent way and you have a hundred thousand views followers versus island boy or the island boys and they have what four or five million um does that bother you at all or do you just uh you know you try to just say hey good for them and roll with the punches that's a good good personal question and ideological question are you going to give me the politically uh, correct answer or are you going to give me the <laughs> uh <laughs> the nathan dufour answer I mean, in some senses it does bother the shit out of me although not necessarily in the way that not not in a manner of envy and jealousy, at least not in my better moments, because in my better moments, I realized that there is something when something is wildly successful, um, 
it can fall into a number of different categories. And sometimes the category is that it's appealing to the basest elements in human nature, like the fascination that we have with watching like a gruesome murder or something. And there's nothing instructive about it whatsoever. But with the Island Boys thing, they created some sort of just catchy, deeply soul stirring something. I mean, it's just like it's just something about it. And really, I'm in the same business because, you know, I'm trying to to make songs and songs are things that have to live and like the the life of it cannot be choked and dominated by some idea you're trying to squish into it. You know what I mean? And so like I and more is just like inspiring to be like, how can I make what I make more and more just delicious? So you forget that it's vegetables. You know what I mean? Yep. Uh, and it's not even about sweetening the vegetables. It's just about like growing this vegetable that's so sexy and so tasty that you're like, oh my God, this is like so much better than, than like gummies from the store. Cause eventually it is, you know what I mean? Like if you, but you have, you gotta have the right veggies to get you into that. Continuing the veggie analogy, you know what I mean? If you have, can I say shitty? This is not like for children, right? It's YouTube. Oh, you're good, man. You're good. Okay, cool. <laughs> If you have shitty vegetables and shitty candy, like if, you know, which is true in a lot of grocery stores, they really don't have very good vegetables in every grocery store. And you have some shitty candy and what's your choice between those? Honestly, the shitty candy is probably tastier in many ways. But if you like, and so if you're comparing in this analogy, going out on a limb here, never thought about it this way, but like, you know, a crappy, canny, just like sticky parody song that teaches you some stuff is kind of like the shitty vegetable. Like it is teaching you some stuff. Or maybe even the lesson that doesn't have any creative elements at all. It's like, that's not really going to be able to compete with the candy because it's not actually as good. It's not made with the intention of livening up your soul. You know what I mean? The candy is better at that. The only thing that can beat out the candy is the truly profound vegetable. The one that is grown upstate someplace with love and care. And you just, you don't even need to put dressing on those spinach leaves because they're just like, oh my God, this is a, this is a poem right now. And that's, you know, that's what I mean by true, true infusion of art and education, where they're, they're just inseparable. They're healthy, but they're also what you actually want to consume. So I think, honestly, that I have a lot of work to do in terms of getting there, because one thing about my art is I kind of hide in my art a little bit. I put so much flex into, like, the animation and into the song structure and stuff like that, and that's good. But I know that I can simplify and touch people even even more directly, which is, I think, something that, you know, a lot of these people with huge accounts that they do, they've found a way to be very just present and like just there. And if yeah. somebody does that, who also has the gift of like having some knowledge to share, then that's, you know, that's dynamite then, you know. You know, I, I've always said this, <clears throat> I say it to my students quite a bit, but I also just for me, I like internally um, monologue to myself about I overthink so much about mm. like whether or not, you know, I critique my own art. And right now, um, you know, I, I had dreams of becoming this big Hollywood director one day, you know, writer and create my own movies. But like I've kind of settled into being OK with um, where we are right now with technology. <clears throat> Excuse me. And uh, Bobby talks. I enjoy this podcast very much. But here's the thing. I'm This is my second my third season be my beginning of my third year doing this and I'm only 42 episodes in. And the reason that is, is because like every episode has to say something, right? It's got to be this mm. powerful episode. And I wish, cause I, I'm like you, I envy like the Island boys because they are so present. They are just doing right. They're not thinking about it. They're just putting it out there and seeing who likes it, who doesn't, if they don't, who cares, they're just doing it. And I need to get to a place where I'm like, you know what? 
there's got to be a healthier, happier mix because I want to put this show out twice a week. That's kind of the goal, right? But a finding the people that I think can I can have conversations with that are you know intelligent and hold their own and different, um, and I think you're doing a great job of that. But it's like uh, everything's got to be this special piece of art. Where in reality, it's like if only they get something from every episode. I think that I'm doing my job, but like I, yeah, I just yeah, I'm totally. afraid to dilute the market and become. And I'm somebody that only has 300 followers on TikTok. So like, who? What am I overthinking this for? You know what I mean? Yeah. Well, I think overthinking is sometimes a part of a process of getting good at something. Um, I'm also, I'm trying to look at areas in my life where it's like, where do I feel like the least amount of overthinking happens, but there's also the maximum amount of uh, productivity and just wholeness. Like, how do you feel when you teach? Because like, I, I, I loved teaching. I didn't stop teaching because I didn't like it. I stopped teaching because I'd done the same classes for like 10 years and I wanted to really devote myself to my creations, which are which, what burned the most in my belly. Um, but there, what I love about teaching and what I want to carry into what I do is that, you know, sometimes I would like have a flicker of nervousness maybe right as I was opening the door to the classroom, just a little bit. But as soon as I was there, I was just like, I, I'm present right now. I have an idea to get across. It doesn't matter if it's perfect. I'm just trying to get the idea across. That's all I'm trying to do. And when I really nail it with my art, it's like I also disappear into that. It's like when I'm when I'm really nailing it, then I'm just like, I just want to get this idea here like nailed. I just want to put it there and and I vanish into the transmission. And like I'm guessing that like with your like leadership work with with kids and stuff that it's like a similar type of thing where like there's no time to overthink because you're too caught up in just like the joy of the transmission. And like I think for me, my journey of creating artworks for distribution on the Internet and in general, it's a long path of cutting away all the excess and just getting it down to like, where do I just vanish into this? And there's no thinking. There's just giving just giving right. and like you know i can tell you have the capacity for that as well and like you also have this educational background and so i imagine as you grow with your stuff it'll be the same sort of thing where you find where i can let go of this and i can just give this and then it'll pop off people will be able to tell you know what i mean they're like oh there's so much joy in that um yeah no i i, I think we're a little bit different in the sense of like um <laughs> so i teach high school, right? Public education. Um, mm -hmm. And I teach an elective that not everybody chose as an elective. So a lot of kids were put into the class. So yeah. that comes with some challenges, right? It's, uh, yep. you know, if they're not interested, I, I'm very much about trying to throw out a topic and get the discussion and make it engaging. And I, I, one thing I like to do is I try to make it the conversation relatable to them. So like I might take, if we're talking about you know, policy within the government or trying to make change. It's like, okay, what, what are some things that are taking place in your own school right now that you think is an injustice or that you don't like, you know, they always talk about, you know, what they're allowed to wear or not wear. And I'm like, okay, how would we go about changing that? Like, why do you think these policies exist? You know, who do you need to talk to? Yada, yada, yada. And those conversations, I might have them in second hour and it might be fantastic. Right. And then in fourth hour, I think it's going to repeat itself. And I'm like, okay, what can I add to it? And I can't even get launched off because half the class isn't interested. They're, they're trying to be on their phone. You know, it's like this whole big thing. It's like they're watching, you know, Nathanology underscore, and I'm trying to get their attention. I mean, I can't compete with that. You know what I mean? So, so yeah, but when it, when it hits, 
it's it's a drug. It's a dopamine rush because it's like this is purpose. This is what I meant to do. Um, but too often there's too much of a battle there. And uh, I think if I could, you know, I don't know how it was as a professor, you know, where kids are choosing to continue their education. I feel like you might at the very least you might have um, maybe not better discussions because when I have discussions, they're very good. But maybe you have less of uh, the people that don't have an interest in it. You know what I mean? Yeah, I did some high school teaching too, and you're right, it's a lot more challenging. But you can hit the same stride. I mean, it's it's there to hit. But you're right, it is a lot harder to hit because which is it goes back to what I was talking about earlier. Is obligation is the worst soil in which to plant uh, organic intellectual growth. It's it's like yes, it's like planting in like cracked, dusty, nutrientless soil where it's like the plants don't really want to be there. A lot of plant analogies going on in this <laughs> podcast today. <laughs> Um, and it, yeah, it makes it a really hard, really hard job. I mean, it's even true of undergrads because undergraduate education at this point also is approached by a lot of people as essentially an obligation, um, which we've kind of turned it into, um, as a society. Yeah. The, the, uh, you have to take these prerequisites. It's like, uh, yeah, exactly. Or you got to go to college, you get the degree just to have the degree. All that. Exactly. <laughs> My favorite used to always be, uh, when you graduated from college, you were ready to start into the world. And it was, uh, um, all these, uh, what do they call it? Entry level jobs. And then mm -hmm. when you look down the credentials, it was like, must have a little bit of experience. It's like, well, wait a minute. How do I have a, how do I get the experience? Right. If this is an entry level job, why would I need experience for it? You know what I mean? My experience was my college degree. So <laughs> I don't know, but, um, all right. So another thing I want to dive into with you. All right. Yep. And, uh, I, 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 as I'm kind of progressing in my evolution of my human growth of who Robert Gifford is. Um, it's, it's a constant battle. I am one day I'm very con or, um, present and aware of all the changes in me that I want to see. Um, and I've been venturing down a couple roads, hedonism, um, which is the pursuit of pleasure. Um, but also this idea of like one thing, and this is interesting because I've kind of feel like I've always kind of been a stoic in, in a way where I just, the way I am is that I don't know the names of anything. So I always have to reverse kind of engineer things yeah. like, what is the thing that I'm doing? You know what I mean? What is that? And then it pops up. But, um, I, I have always kind of felt like, okay, you know, I tell my students all the time, it's like, you know, this country, or at least in, you know, we're too reactionary to things, you know, it's like, what can we be do to be proactive? Um, so that our reaction isn't as hysterical as it becomes. Um, and then I kind of broke that down to even more. It's like, well, we can control what we can control. And that is how we react to something. Um, and now in my personal life, I kind of find myself asking this question and I'm going to put that to the side. I just want to kind of introduce stoic or stoicism first before I start asking some of these other questions. Um, do you, subscribe to that philosophy? Is it something that you're just having fun with on TikTok? Uh, could you give like a brief definition of stoicism and then like what your thoughts are on it and why you do some, a couple, you know, so much work on it? Yeah, sure. Um, yeah. Stoicism uh, is uh, a philosophy that has its roots in the Hellenistic Greek world. So it's like not at the very advent of ancient Greek philosophy, but pretty close to the beginning of it. Um, and so it sort of picks up steam in the fourth and third centuries BCE, and then becomes extremely popular in the Roman world, which is why it had such a great legacy because the Romans were really into it. Um, and the 
idea is basically this. Uh, the universe is one giant sentient living organism. This is the part that is not as commonly known nowadays when we think of modern Stoicism, but this is how the ancients thought of it. It's just one entity. You're part of it. Kind of like we were talking about earlier. You bear the relation to it like, like a cell to our body, to use that analogy we were using earlier. Therefore, your position is essentially one of service. You have a role to play. You might have been born an emperor. You might have been born a slave. Your fortunes may change. You may go from being the one to the other or the other to the one. But it doesn't really matter so long as you are living in pursuit of virtue as you go through these changes. And as you do so, pursuing virtue, that pursuit of virtue is defined by uh, whatever your role is in that given situation. So play your role. And when you feel elated about it or when you feel dejected about it, it's not that that doesn't matter because that can affect your behavior, but it isn't the point. And so the goal is to not give assent to these subjective surges of what we would now call emotion, although the ancients didn't really have a word for emotion as we now understand it as like a chemical thing, but they did have feelings, obviously. Don't give assent to those feelings as something that becomes master of you but let them just be. And so another way to configure that and the sort of classical way of configuring it is that pleasure and pain are matters of indifference. They're neither here nor there. They just are. And that is sort of stoicism in a nutshell. It's where we get the word stoic, like be stoic, don't complain about stuff. It's not about denying emotion altogether. It's just, it's not the central thing. It's not what runs the show, nor should it be what dominates your decisions. Because again, there's this metaphysical underpinning that we're part of this living whole, like everything. Okay, so I want to stop you right there then, because that's kind of where my question was going to go. Um, is that, <clears throat> so the way I've been kind of looking at it, and maybe I'm wrong altogether, is that I am a very emotional person, right? Uh, as far as... Um, I, I, I'm an empathetic person, so I can feel mm -hmm. these things. And I have a lot of those chemical neurons taking place and or charges taking place. Um, but what's happening is, is that even though it just is, what I'm trying to do is control, or maybe not control is not, maybe not the right word, but get back to a stoic place faster. Um, mm. Because, and I'll give you an example. Um you know, you have an issue with uh, something at work or a conflict with your boss or maybe a disagreement with your significant other, whatever. Um, and for a while, it would linger with me. And it would be something, even though that I had physically moved on to do another task or to do something different, um, if it wasn't solved, it was still weighing on me. And even if it did get solved, it was still weighing on me on how could I have went about that better or what could I have done to change my part so that didn't take place in the first place? Um, you know, constantly trying to grow and learn from something. Yeah. But I did recognize, and this is where my battle is with it right now, is that it lingers way too long. And I'm trying – stoic's not about not accepting the emotion. It's about accepting the emotion, know, knowing that it is – very much a real thing. You can't just cut yourself off from it altogether. Mm -hmm. um, but am I am I on the right path? Is it is it about trying to accept it for what it is, and then that way it doesn't linger as long? I think and very why, much so. And why does it linger the way it does? Is it is that just a is the linger there because of a byproduct of me giving it more attention in the past, or what what is the reason for that? 
there's uh, a discussion of this in the, there's a Roman writer named Seneca. Um, Seneca was a philosopher and also a, a teacher and an advisor to the emperor Nero. Um, didn't do a great job on Nero because Nero didn't turn out that good, but he was a good philosopher. He wrote, wrote some good books. And one of his books is called De Ira on Wrath. And he talks about how the immediate presentation of a certain feeling such as anger or fear is something we have no control of. We're biological. And he didn't have a theory of biological evolution like the way we do in the modern world, but he did have the notion that there are certain sort of natural impetuses, and actually that's his word, is an impetus um, that happens. Like if you were to see like a, a tiger or something like that, your your physical system, your whole self be like, oh, fucking shit. Oh, shit, that's a fucking tiger. Oh, my God. <laughs> but then the uh, stoic choice is do I accept that fear? It's like do I like go like, okay, yep, I'm running the program. When the pop-up comes up, do I click okay or do I calmly click cancel? Even if right. it continuously pops up, you know what I mean? And that continuous pop-up thing and not getting frustrated with it and not giving in to the desire to maybe try and meddle with it or something like that is, you know, that's something that I face a lot too. I have a history of obsessive thinking, like even clinical diagnosed OCD stuff, which is very intrusive thought based, you know, things keep presenting themselves to the mind that I know rationally are not helpful. And then I have a choice about, okay, do I acknowledge and then dismiss them or let them dissolve in my hands as I hold them? Or do I um, wrestle with them as though there's some solution to be found there? And the answer is definitely the former and not the latter. And I think it's similar with other emotional things with which we're confronted. And so I think that it can be a powerful tool. Lately, a, a mantra with me when disappointments happen or when imperfections occur in my day is this idea of embracing the wound or loving the wound, which is powerful to me for some reason. It's like when something shitty happens or like I'm greeted with something that makes me super uncomfortable or makes me feel angry or whatever, just be like, oh, wow, there's a huge gouge in me. That was a giant gouge. Like, oh, my goodness, look at that. I'm bleeding all over. But sort of take it that way, just like observe, like, oh, holy shit. You know what I mean? Like, a like you're on drugs and you it. can't feel things or something. And it's like, oh, I just cut off my arm. How interesting, fascinating. You know what I mean? You don't try to make bad stuff happen, but you just accept it as as fascinating. And I think this is something that stoicism, like even the, the word stoic has a very like sullen connotation, very somber connotation. But I don't think stoicism in its ancient capacity, especially not it's not about somber. There's actually like a wonderment in it, like, oh, wow, now that. Okay, well, let's continue with the sublime strangeness of existing uh, and not get too bent out of shape about that, even though that was terrible. <laughs> right. You know? You know, it's kind of, for me, I've always kind of, uh, <clears throat> long before I got I ventured on stoicism, it was always, my philosophy on life was things, and a lot of this comes from, you know, what I, I have my privileges, right? Mm. So because my, you know, at the time, my grandfather, my mother, and my grandmother are such a great presence in my life and a great support system of love and encouragement and adventure, um, I know that at the end of the day, no matter any of the risks I take in my life, I have them to fall back on. No matter the age, no matter the time, I have them to fall back on. So my philosophy in life has always been like, it's okay. Like, it's okay to go a little further. It's okay that this is happening to me because it's all going to be okay. Um, right. And so that kind of ventured, you know, like, okay, you know, that's got to have something to do with it. Um, and if you need a label, then it's like, okay, maybe this is what I'm doing. 
Um, but you, you said something in your video and I think I, I'm curious. So we're not just talking about negative emotions though. What is the detriment to not sitting in to the joy longer? So like in my example of, you know, letting the anger linger too long, what if joy was the linger too long? Is, is that not a, a, a better, um, um, re end result of something. Don't you want to sit in that as long as you can? Isn't that what we're kind of all chasing is, you know, happiness is a fleeting thing, but if you can be content and joy for longer periods, then I think that's what we would want in life. Right. So what is the, what is the, I guess the negative effect of sitting in that too long? Well, I think there's different gradations or I shouldn't even say gradations, but different kinds that are easily confused among them. Um, of joy. And it's not that the Stoics don't allow for a certain type of deep abiding joy that they obtain much the way there is a deep abiding joy that's obtained by the total release of self that comes in something like Buddhism um, or other forms of pursuing a form of enlightenment where there's like a deep, a deep abiding flow of contentment. Um, I think that it's not about avoiding that there isn't and there's a happiness and something that can very much be called joy that comes from it but i think as we know also from our experience there are types of elation that can master us that make us manic you know i think that's the type of thing that a stoic would uh, choose to acknowledge and then process the same way you would acknowledge and process a major disappointment um, because it is ultimately not conducive to the healthy functioning of the organism. And again, crucial though, like none of this stuff is supposed to operate in a vacuum. This is the problem I have with modern stoicism, which is not a bad thing, but the, modern stoicism is like a pretty popular movement. But what modern stoicism has done is decided to emphasize just this ethical stuff about, you know, control your emotions and, you know, don't give in to excessive excessive happiness that messes you up or excessive sadness that messes you up. Um, it's very popular, but it's cut off the reasoning behind it because, again, the reasoning behind it was this strange metaphysical claim that we belong to a giant ensouled universe that has mind, and the laws of the universe are the operations of mind, and you're, you as a rational being partake of that mind. You have a little share of that mind in you. Stay with it. Is that – are you – if your cell is having a bad day, do you give a shit? No, you don't, because it doesn't matter to the functioning of you. You're trying to, you know, keep on driving your car and not crash or whatever. If an individual cell is complaining, completely irrelevant, equally irrelevant if it's like really filling its job as a cell, you know what I mean? Whatever type of cell it happens to be. Uh, <laughs> and that's what it's based on. And now that they've we've, we've cut that off from modern stoicism. It's been popularized by many people. Ryan Holiday is somebody who's popularized a lot. I don't have any problem with Ryan Holiday. I think he's done a good job of popularizing stoicism. There's some other thinkers who have done similarly. However, I do think it's problematic to cut off the reasoning. One, for just the philosophical reason that, like, based on what then should we not worry about our emotions? Or, like, you know, there's really no basis for it. So that's problem number one. And then problem number two is that it de-emphasizes the aspect of service. Interestingly, modern Stoicism has been super popular with CEOs, uh, really wealthy people. And I'm not against, you know, people who succeed in their business categorically, but I do think that there's a lot of economic imbalance in our world. And if Stoicism is being brought in as a way like, hey, 
you're the you're the CEO of a multi-billion dollar corporation that has a lot of exploitative practices. Don't worry too much though. Be a stoic. Just play your role. That's not really getting at the point. Because right. the point goes way deeper than that. And like I said, some Stoics were slaves, some were emperors, Marcus Aurelius, you know, most famously. But he was not accepting that burden as something where his Stoicism gave him an out from having to care about its consequences. Rather, it made it so his whole life was devoted to a scrupulosity as to the consequences of his actions and an acceptance of their imperfection, yes, but also a deep and ineradicable commitment to um, doing right by others. Yeah, it sounds like uh, you know you know what you sound like, Nathan. You sound like um, one of those guys that it's like uh, Christians who hate the Christmas Easter only people. It's like you don't get to pick and choose. You don't get to pick and choose what part of this you want to support and yeah. what part you don't. You need to be all in or not. You know, uh, I guess I guess I subscribe more. I suppose to kind of in between them because uh, I definitely gravitate to that service part. Um, but kind of to answer your first question was like, what is the point then would be my answer would be simply as a functioning tool to, you know, approach life, a way to approach life. Um, it just in the means of like, you'll see that by doing this, there will be yeah. a direct result. You should be happier or you should be less stressed or less dramatic or whatever. All these last trauma because if that's of the it. case then. If that's the case, then then there's a better word for it, which is Epicureanism. That's because that's what Epi Epi Epicureanism was—a contemporaneous philosophical movement that was m more, in terms of its underlying suppositions, was more similar to modern perspective because they held an early version of atomism. They didn't have an idea of things being smaller than the atom. I mean, actually, atom etymologically just means something that you can't cut, can't get smaller than it. So call it subatomic particles, whatever. They're like, it's all just particles cascading through the void. These particles happen to randomly collide in such a way that we've had the evolution of matter into organic life forms, and you're one of them, but there's no meaning in it. And there may be gods, but the gods exist if they exist in a space that has no influence on you and you no influence on them, because why would they care even if they did exist? And so you're just here, and that's the situation. So try and take it easy. Therefore, pursue a life of pleasure. But here's the thing. Pleasure is not defined by just doing whatever the hell you want to because that's going to make right. your life suck even more. Therefore, keep your feelings in check. Don't get too excited. Don't get too sad. And live as simply as possible. <laughs> so outwardly, they were. it was, it was sort of a, an ironic thing that outwardly in their behavior, the Stoics and the Epicureans were virtually identical in many respects in terms of how they lived. And Epicurus, the founder of that, that uh, philosophy, was famed for his virtue. Like he, he seemed like a Stoic, but his reasons were totally different. And so at that point, like if, I think if that's, that's the one that really, to me, translates more directly to the modern world. And like some of these, the popularity of modern Stoicism, sometimes I feel like it would be more better named Epicureanism. Although now when we say Epicurean, we mean somebody who likes food, which is another irony. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I, I like food, but I only like a limited amount of food. So I don't, I'm kind of torn yeah. now. I told you, man, this is what I do though. I'm like reverse engineering my life to try to find labels. It's like, I, I, every time I find a label, I, I, so, I feel so much better. It's this weird thing where I'm like, oh my gosh, I feel like I'm all of a sudden I'm, you know, I'm involved into a community. I'm, you know, I, I belong to somebody now, you know what I mean? Right. Cause I'm like, this is what I am. You know what I mean? Um, but now that you say that, I now I'm kind of questioning the whole stoic thing. So, well, but. here's the thing too. I mean, the uh, labels 
are not necessarily the most effective way to develop uh, a way of life, you know, and, and the tendency, especially in academia and in higher learning, is to offer you labels. And labels are like these tools that you use to gather a bunch of information, be like, this all belongs to this category, and this to this right. category, and this to this category. But you don't see a lot of academics who are certainly not academic philosophers who are famous for living their philosophy. In fact, the whole gap between philosophy and actual practical life is a really pernicious thing that now philosophy, we think of this thing that happens in schools and we learn about and we go like, oh, that's interesting. And then we have, but how do you actually live? And we have self-help over here, self-help and therapy over in this bucket, philosophy in this bucket. And philosophy is the master of the isms that can analyze and describe and the chaos of different self-help methods. There's no systematicity. It's just a bunch of people giving advice to other people. Now, really, these two things should be together. Right. But the isms are not the point. The isms are a tool. But too often, I think people who fetishize the isms don't, don't, don't really do any service to themselves or to the quest. Whereas like what you have, what it sounds like you have is an earnest desire to develop some organic systematicity in your actual living. And like, that's the point. The description is secondary. The description is of like secondary good, interest, you know? Yeah. That's a great way of looking at it. Cause I think you just nailed me to a T it's like, I, cause I'm constantly picking and choosing from, multiple philosophies and ways of living that adapt, I think best to me, but it's kind of derives from this idea of like, it's always been within me. It's just mm -hmm. me trying to look for a name of what these things are because, you know, I didn't look at education the way I should have up until, you know, in my, my mid twenties, you know what I mean? I start starving for these things and now it's like, I wish I had that, you know, that word to pull from, you know, like you, you have this plethora of knowledge to just pull from. Um, in this, this massive vocabulary list that I'm trying to play catch up on, but, uh, we're getting there. So yeah, I learned yeah. two new words today. One, one, one more word, word for you <laughs> on, on that note, one more word that'll be, that'll sort of cap it off is there was another school of ancient philosophers called the eclectics, which weren't really a school, but this is where we get the word eclectic in the modern sense, because it literally means choosing out. And there was a, a, a sort of a minority of ancient philosophers whose writings we have preserved that were like, fuck it. I'm not going to pick a team. I'm just going to choose things and make a sort of cornucopia of stuff that I like. Right. And like, it sounds like that's sort of what your thing is, you know, I knew eclectic, but I knew it as a wide variety of things. So yeah, you yeah, we use it as a common word now because, but it literally it referred to a certain type of philosophizing in, in its original context. Awesome. I can thank Whoopi Goldberg for teaching me eclectic. Do you ever see sister act uh, two? Uh, you know, I did when I was a kid, I haven't seen it in a long time. I don't think I can quite differentiate the events of sister acts one and two in my mind right now. What, what happens in one versus two? Uh, one, all the nuns go singing and two, she teaches at a school. Oh, she teaches. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I remember that now. Yeah. <laughs> cool. Nathan, I gotta tell you, man, <laughs> this has been the most enjoyable hour. I have. I'm so glad. Just, Same. I enjoyed and, and, it. I've enjoyed it. I admire the hell out of you. I hope you uh, continue the success. Keep looking for things from you. Um, do you have any final words on the show or just in, in general? Yeah, just thanks for having me. And I, I also wish you the best with all of your undertakings. And yeah, if anybody listening or watching wants to reach out, you can find me at Nathanology underscore on socials. And uh, my YouTube channel is called Nathanology. Or you can, uh, I don't know, hit hit Bobby up and he'll give you my email. You can do that. <laughs> That's right. I'm going to come and I'm going to put all your links and everything into uh, all of my descriptions um, and all my social media. So um, right on. All right. 
Social media world, everybody, hit, like, subscribe, follow, do the whole thing. Go on TikTok, uh, Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, wherever you can find at Bobby Talks Three Dots. Those dots are there to tell you there's always more of the story. It's an ellipsis. You know the drill by now. Um, just from the bottom of my heart, really appreciate it. For those of you that are on my podcast, you know, whether it be Spotify, Apple, please rate and review the show if you can. It really helps with the growth. And uh, yeah, I just, uh, again, Nathan, thanks for being on the show. We'll see the rest Thank of you on down the road. Peace.